0: We are part five through a seven-week series presently and we are in the Book of Revelation and we have been introduced to seven churches, seven churches that existed at the end of the first century AD and um, it was then uh, in a place called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And to each of these churches, Jesus sent a message, and the message was communicated through a vision uh, to John, one of Jesus' disciples and the author of John's Gospel. And the book of Revelation, as probably we all know by now, is one of the most difficult books in the entire Bible. It's full of bizarre imagery, trumpets and angels and earthquakes and dragons and beasts and it's left many of us, I know, scratching our heads from time to time. What on earth is this all about? And what has this got to do with anything at all? And even the most brilliant of theologians and academics are divided on how they understand this, uh, this book. And I imagine that some of you are saying that if it's that difficult, why are we bothering? Well, to tell you the truth, <laughs> that's a question I've asked myself once or twice as well. well Despite the difficulties in understanding the complex imagery that we have here, it's good to remember that Christ is actually communicating a very, very important message to this church and and, and also to all of us. It's a message of hope and assurance that He is Lord, even on those times when it appears that He he doesn't seem to be, that He is the one who is all-seeing, all-knowing and all-powerful and more specifically in our series uh, over the last few weeks on the seven churches we are given an understanding of how Jesus evaluates a church you know we as human beings frail though we are we often look at a church through externals and but Jesus looks much deeper than that he looks at the heart of a church and the some of the churches that we've studied together. Uh, have been commended by Jesus. Some of them have been criticised. Some of them have been both commended and criticised. But they um, are most definitely not the magnificent seven. Maybe a better description of these seven churches would be the good, the bad and the ugly. And we've uh, looked at churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, today Sardis, next week Philadelphia, and then we're finishing off with Laodicea. Uh, But this morning, before we jump into the the Bible text, let's find out a little bit about this city in the ancient world. Well, ancient Sardis was thought of as impregnable. It stood on a narrow plateau, 1,500 feet above the valley, with very deep sides. And because of its position, it became very confident, actually overconfident, that it could withstand any enemy attack. Sardis was also a wealthy city, it was, its wealth was legendary, gold could be found in the riverbed and it was in Sardis that money was first minted, you could say that uh, they invented money. The population was also so wealthy that when uh, an earthquake destroyed the town, they got that town rebuilt within a period of 18 months, funding the entire rebuilding programme from their own pockets, that was Sardis. So the city, oh, let me put uh, that on for you. As you can see there, the peak, and there was a plateau behind that, and that is where the ancient city of Sardis was. Well, the city was self-sufficient due to their wealth. It was self-confident due to the security of its position, and also it was self-indulgent. They were hedonists. Uh, constantly seeking pleasure. And that was the city of Sardis. The shame is that the church in Sardis reflected what the town was like. And Jesus has something to say about this. So let's look at this together. Revelation 3 verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church, in Sardis, right, and we've said before that the angel, the Greek word angelos, probably means uh, the pastor or the church leader. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and seven stars. Seven spirits of God. What what are we to make of that? That's a strange description. Perhaps it should be better uh, translated the sevenfold spirit of God. And once you look in uh, Isaiah in the, Old cha- in the Old Testament, chapter 11, verse 2, we can see there are seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation for being alive but are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, that you have re- that you have received what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, this church is a little bit unlike the churches that we've studied so far. The church at Sardis, as we can see through those words, has absolutely no commendation from the Lord. And apart from Sardis and Laodicea, we're going to study in a couple of weeks' time, the Lord actually found something praiseworthy in all of the other churches. For example, to Ephesus, and we know that Ephesus was not a good church it was a backslidden church but still the Lord could say of that church I know your deeds I know your hard work and your perseverance and so forth to the church at Smyrna I know your affliction and your poverty yet you are rich To the church of Pergamon I know where you live where, where Satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name to the church at Thyatira I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance and that you're now doing more than you did at first. But not so with Sardis. There is no commendation, there is no nothing that is praiseworthy and the Lord comes straight to the point here and he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive but are dead. Imagine yourself being in that congregation when the pastor of the church read out this letter from the Lord to the church at Sardis. My word, I I think I would have winced and I'm sure they did as well. They thought that they were doing well. They were undoubtedly the, the talk of the town. They had a good reputation. People have heard of this church. They were highly thought of in church circles, but they were living on past successes. They were resting on their laurels as a church. They were, if you like, dining out on past glories and accomplishments. And yet the Lord, to this church in Sardis, had a very, very different opinion than the opinion that others had, the opinion that they had of themselves, probably. Now, I'm sure that most of us here this morning know what a light year is. A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. And distances in space are so utterly vast, incredibly large, that it's probably the most simple way of describing the distances in space by speaking of them in terms of light year. And um, astronomers tell us that the light from the polar star is actually 33 light years away. Now, it doesn't sound far, does it, 33 light years? You know, you go up the Glasgow Road, then down Sheepcourt Lane, and then it's, it's not far after that. And that's the kind of impression that you get. Doesn't sound much at all, but since light, as we know, travels at 186,000 miles every second, to work out how far this 33 light years is away, we times that 186,000 times 60 to find out how far it travels in a minute, times it by 60 again to find out how far it travels in an hour. By 24, by 365, by 33, because it's 33 light years away. Hang on a second. <laughs> a- 194 trillion. There we go. <laughs> 194 trillion miles away, amazing. Now, I don't know if any of you have been on Concorde. Any of you been on Concorde? I'm a Ryanair man myself. <laughs> Uh, No, none of you, okay. Well, Concorde's uh, top speed was 1,354 miles per hour. So if Concorde, uh, uh, travelling at 1,354 miles an hour, could take you to the polar star, it would take you 16 million years to get there. That's quite some distance, isn't it? Why am I telling you all this? Okay, stay with me, please. If the polar star blew into oblivion in the late 1980s, what were you doing in the late 1980s? If the polar star blew into oblivion in the late 1980s, because it is 33 light years away, our world would still be seeing it as it was back then and still receiving its light on earth and will do so for a few years yet. Whoa! (laughs) That is mind-blowing. But if that happened, it would still be a dead star shining solely by the light of a brilliant past. It would be a dead star shining by the light of a brilliant past and that exactly, is the testimony of this church in Sardis. It was dead, but yet it was shining by the light of a brilliant past. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but it wasn't the present reality of that church. Jesus had a totally different estimation and evaluation of that church. Jesus saw it as dead, everybody else saw it as very much the place to be, it was alive. Someone once said, Worry about your character and not your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Worry about your character, not your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Now, I think I'd be the first to. Um, agree that a good reputation with others is better than a bad reputation. But I also believe that we actually need to hold on lightly to what others think about us, whether it's good or bad, because there is only one opinion that matters, yeah? And that opinion is from the one who took off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist and got a bowl of water and washed the, the dirty feet of pompous, arrogant disciples who didn't do that for each other. Paul encourages us to follow Jesus' example. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, "'Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, "'who, being in the nature God did not consider equality with God "'something to be grasped, but made himself nothing.'" Those words, made himself nothing. If any of you still use the uh, King James Version, Authorised Version of the Bible, it says there that he made himself of no reputation, Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his reputation. He gave up the glory and the majesty, which was his in heaven with Father God. It's an old song that we used to sing uh, some years ago in this church, You laid Aside Your Majesty gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those that you've created. Jesus gave up his riches, his rights, his reputation, but this church in Sardis was actually living by its reputation, a reputation for being alive, and yet it was dead. I've been reflecting on this passage uh, quite a lot this week, Um, and one of the questions I asked myself, what is an alive church? What does an alive church look like? You know, I've uh, often heard Christians speaking of, oh, this church, Church A, Church B, whatever, Church C, it's really alive. It's, a, it's an alive church. But what does that mean? Well, when I was, uh, first became a Christian, I had quite dogmatic thoughts on this. Everything was dogmatic in those days. And before Julie and I were, were, were married, we were attending different churches and i was attending a pentecostal church and julie was attending a rather strict reformed church congregational church and i thought that the church that i was attending was alive and hers was dead because we in the pentecostal church we raised our hands and we clapped our hands and perhaps some of the more extrovert members danced in the aisles That soon and very soon we're going to See the King or Kumbaya or whatever it was that we sang in those days. As you can imagine, I wasn't particularly subtle in my views, saying that our church was, my church was alive but Julie's was dead. And I sometimes said to her that her church service was so much like a funeral service, it must surely, surely be dead. But Julie was not shy in making her views known to me. She responded that... Her church was very much alive because, after all, think of the wonderful Bible teaching that we get and the emphasis on prayer and the the deep commitment of the congregation who just took discipleship so seriously. And she thought that the church that I attended was embarrassingly happy clappy (laughs) with no real substance. Cheeky woman. She called it theologically lightweight and immature. She claimed that the worship service was more like a pantomime than an act of worship to Almighty God. Game set and match truly, I say. (laughs) Now, we've both changed a lot since since then. Uh, But my point is that we all have opinions of what constitutes a church which is alive, but there's only one opinion that truly matters. I get very nervous when I hear people big up Tamworth Elim Church. I get very, very nervous about that. And the reason I get nervous is because we are what we are by God's grace and God's grace alone. That's it. Our claim to fame is God's grace and nothing in us. And that's why Julie and I called uh, our recent book Grace and Glory It's because everything in the Christian journey is focused on those two words. Everything that we are and everything that we have is by God's grace to us, his amazing grace, that we are beneficiaries of that grace, that unearned, undeserved, unwarranted, gratuitous love of Jesus. And every success and every win is for his glory. He is the one who deserves all the praise. Um, This week, um, I'm... Our leadership team met and um, I gave them an exercise before we, we met together this week. And I said to them, given we are going through this particular series on the seven churches at the moment, I said, if Jesus, the risen Jesus, could write to our church at Tamworth, what would he say? What would he say? And I asked them to consider my question more really than than just a paper exercise but something that they would prayerfully reflect on would there be more to commend us or more to complain about and the responses were absolutely fascinating although we didn't consult one another before this the responses were so incredibly similar with one another And the discussion that ensued brought us to a place of acknowledging that we need to humble ourselves, that we need to come before the Lord, that we need days of prayer and fasting as a church leadership initially. And we have penciled those into our diaries over the next three months. And the reason for this, that we so desire to align ourselves, keep in step with the spirit of God and not to go our own ways. You see, we really don't want to live on our reputation and rest on our laurels. We don't want to bask in the glories of the past, but we want to keep in step with his spirit. And I will share some of those views with you, not today, but uh, we'll talk about this perhaps in, uh, in months ahead. I Don't know if you've noticed as well, In this this church at Sardis, in this letter, there's no mention of hardships or opposition or persecution against this church. Why is that? I suppose in this respect, Sardis was the odd church out because we've seen it in the other churches that we've studied so far. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus, for example, for enduring hardships and for standing up against the wicked, evil practices of the Nicolaitans a heretical sect. To the church at Smyrna, the second church, it was afflicted and it was desperately poor. They were being slandered. They were suffering greatly for the Lord. The third church, the church of Pergamum, it was said where Satan had his throne. One of their members had already been martyred for his faith, a man by the name of Antipas. Opposition came from outside from the pagan community. The fourth church that Dan spoke on last week, Thyatira. Opposition came this time from the inside, from a a wicked woman called, nicknamed Jezebel, a so-called prophetess. But here, there's no opposition and no persecution at Sardis. Why is that? Do you know what I believe? I believe it's because the church at Sardis presented no significant threat to satan's domain that's why essentially sardis wasn't worth attacking there was no threat there to the the kingdom of darkness there was they didn't ruffle any feathers in the spiritual realm didn't jesus on one occasion say woe to you when all men speak well of you and it would appear that this church at sardis like the town in which they lived was self sufficient self-confident and self-indulgent they were soft they were spiritually flabby christians who had not only not counted the cost of jesus but they had not even realized that there was a cost in following jesus pentecostal pioneer smith wigglesworth came out with this great quote many years ago great faith is the product of great fights great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. And great triumphs can only come out of great trials. So what does Jesus then say to this, uh, this dead church? The first thing he says to them is, wake up. Wake up, Sardis. And it seems almost a contradiction in terms because Sardis wasn't a dying church. It wasn't a church which was asleep. It was a church Jesus had said was dead. So surely dead people or for that matter dead churches don't respond to anything, <coughs> or do they? Well, in the economy of God, dead things live again. Yes? We worship a God who has defeated death. We worship one who has conquered the grave. He is the one who can say to a man four days dead, Lazarus, come forth. He is the one who can say to a widow's dead son, Rise, and to a synagogue ruler's daughter, Talitha Kahum, little girl, get up. He is also the one who can breathe spiritual life into the spiritually dead. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, You were once dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. And even though the risen Christ says that this church at Sardis was dead, if they put things right, if they strengthen what remains, there was always hope. And in the six verses that we read together a few moments ago, Jesus says, wake up twice. In verse 2 there, wake up, strengthen what remains. And in verse 3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know, and you will not know the time I will come to you. Now the Greek word, and the New Testament is written in Greek, the Greek word for wake also means wa- be watchful be vigilant, be attentive. And this would have been especially relevant to this church in Sardis, and let me tell you why. The city of Sardis, as I mentioned uh, earlier, thought of itself as impregnable because of its location. Three sides of the plateau in which the city was located had steep vertical sides. It was almost impossible to get into this city. And yet, the city of Sardis in history had been defeated twice and twice in the same way on both occasions. Once in uh, 549 BC and the second time in 218 BC. Let me explain what happened. In 549 BC, the Persian king Cyrus and his army laid siege to this city of Sardis. After 14 days of not getting anywhere at all, Cyrus said to his men that, The one who could find a way into this city would have a special reward. And then one of his, uh, his soldiers, um, I'm not going to give you his name because I can't pronounce it, witnessed a Sardian soldier look over the deepest side from the plateau. And as he did that, he lost his helmet. So the soldier climbed down a secret pathway, a crevice in the rock face to retrieve his helmet. helmet. But when uh, Is th- this enemy soldier in the, the valley was looking up. He saw what happened, and realised that if he and his fellow soldiers could get just to the first ledge, then they knew now that there was a secret pathway. So they waited until dark, and then overpowered the city. And the reason that they overpowered the city because the Sardians were so confident that no one could ever attack from that side. They didn't even put a sentry on guard. Isn't that incredible? Incredible story. They weren't watchful. They were overconfident. And they got defeated. They got captured on two occasions in, in the same way. And Christ's words to this church at Sardis were wake up, be watchful. I'm gonna come like a thief in the night. You know, huge relevance, huge poignancy for this uh, this city that had been defeated in this way. The New Testament tells us that we are also to watch out. It speaks about watching out and being watchful on many, many occasions, to be watch out, to watch out against the schemes of the devil. Our battle is a spiritual battle; it's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the darkness and rulers of this world. Says Paul. We're to watch out against temptation. We're to watch out against false teachers. We're to watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To live our lives as if he were returning today, but to plan as though he were not returning in our lifetime. And I believe that one of the main responsibilities of a church leadership is to be alert and to be watchful against complacency and against overconfidence and against spiritual decline not to be lulled into a a false sense of security. You know, things can change so fast and a thriving church can so easily fall into decline. And there are many, many cautionary tales of this. Some years ago in the late 80s, when I was uh, ministering in Cardiff, I was told of a church there and it's called Wood Street Congregational Church. Now, this church was an absolutely thriving congregational church, the biggest church in Wales. It had a marvellous congregation, 2,000 people attended that church, 1,000 in the Sunday school. Astonishing, can you imagine that? And yet in 1971, before I got to Cardiff, it was demolished and replaced by an office block, astonishing. They weren't watching, they weren't watching. Theologian, Dr Vince Havner, said that spiritual ministries often go in four stages. Man, movement, machine, monument. What did he mean? Well, whenever God's work starts and whenever God wants to do something, it's often a man or woman that God uses to do that work. Someone who is open, someone who is available, someone who says, yes, Lord, I will serve you uh, purposes in this world. Our own movement of churches is over 100 years old. It it was started by a man called George Jeffreys, a man who was particularly uneducated. And yet this man was a great man of God. He led thousands of people to Jesus. Remarkable signs and wonders. But then it moves on to being a movement As the name suggests, a movement is still going forward, but a movement is is larger, is more organised than just one man and a few friends. And to to contain growth very often, uh, certain structures have to be put in place, perhaps a hierarchy of ministry, um, a constitution, buildings and so forth. And then from there, it goes into machine. Now, this is the, the danger stage. This is where the the living organism of a church becomes an organization an institution things are done because they have always been done this way nobody asks why and often the second and third generations of a church um, goes into this this third area of decline really the first generation were the pioneers the second generation were often pioneers but often catching really something of that first generation but not always but then by the time of the third generation comes along what they are left with is a form of religion but faith is missing a little bit like what paul spoke to timothy about when he says you have a form of godliness but denying the power and following machine you have monument this is stage four i have walked Probably many hundreds of times down Market Street, and I have seen that monument of Robert Peel. And do you know what? Not on one occasion has I seen it move. <laughs> not one occasion. You might have seen it. Maybe after a late night and Saturday night. No, I won't go there. I've not seen it move once. Monuments don't move. And Sardis was quickly heading to this monument stage. And Jesus says to this church, wake up, be watchful, strengthen what remains. And despite their decline, Jesus had not given up on them. And Jesus has not given up on us or on any church. Can you move the next one on, please? Jesus says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Remember therefore what you have received and heard obey it, and repent. Now, there are three imperatives in this sentence, remember, obey, and repent. And this morning we've shared communion together, and what we have done in sharing communion together, we have engaged in remembering. We have remembered the Lord's sacrificial love to us. As if we were the only one that he died for, we remember that in a personal way. And all those that occasions when we sometimes wobble in our faith and we sometimes have doubts, it is good to go back to the beginning, to basics, and to remind ourselves how precious we are in the sight of God and to remind ourselves of the price that he paid for us. Three words, remember, obey. What's the Lord telling us to do? What's the Lord instructing us to do or to change or to put right or to get rid of in our lives presently? Jesus, remember the time when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And then he said to them, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you what? Do them. You'll be blessed if you do them. the blessing always comes in obedience, not merely in knowing. And then there was the word repent. A well-known Bible teacher of uh, another generation, a man by the name of Alan Redpath, was staying with some friends of his, and his friends are two very active boys They're full of life, full of energy. And on this night, he went out with his friends to a, to a meeting, uh, leaving the boys at home, and when he and they returned home later that evening, there was just deadly silence. They unlocked the front door, and there was a deep feeling of apprehension. They called out, no answer. They went into the living room. And on the table in the living room, they found a neat pile of of uh, shattered fragments of a valuable vase. Alongside that vase, that broken vase, was a note from the boys. Dear Mum and Dad, we are terribly sorry. We knocked the vase and it broke. P.S. We have put ourselves to bed without supper. (laughs) What do you think that that father did? Do you think he went upstairs to drag the kids out of of bed and give them what for? Of course not. They had passed judgement on themselves and their parents were disarmed. And that, in essence, (coughs) is what the risen Lord is saying to this church in Sardis. Realise your shortcomings. Realise your need for me. Realise the need and repent. Turn around. Do a 180 so I won't have to come back in judgement. And then in verse 5, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. What great promises we've got there. First of all, dressed in white signifying purity and righteousness and worthiness. Names never blotted out of the book of life, representing an eternity with God. Acknowledged by Jesus and his Father and the angels, demonstrating that Christ's never ending love for his own. And then, as with all the other letters, the letter finishes with these words, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that's where we are left this morning. What is the Spirit saying not to all churches at large, but to us at Tamworth Church. What is the Spirit saying to us individually? What is the application to my life? You see, these words to Sardis were, I, are, I also believe, a huge and a significant challenge to us in Tamworth Elim Church in 2019. They're a warning against complacency, they're a challenge to apathy, and they're also a caution to self-satisfaction. In our town, Over many years, we have built up a good name. We have a reputation for reaching out to the least, the lost and the lonely. But we cannot, 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 cannot rest on our laurels. We can't. There's no room for pride. No room for really celebrating past glories. As I often say, draw from the past, be inspired by the past, but let the past be the past. We're not meant to live there, we aren't. Guys, would you like to come back please? We'll finish with a worship song in a moment of time. And when I say that this is a significant challenge to Tamworth Elim Church, I need to remind you this morning that I'm not speaking about some organisation out there somewhere that we call Tamworth Elim Church but this is a message to us individually, to each one of us here, who calls this your home. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard uh, Churches, was once approached by a member of his congregation, um, and this guy had met someone who was in great need during the week. And after the Sunday service, this guy caught up with John Wimber, and out of his frustration of trying to help this man, he said to John, this man, Needed a place to stay. He Needed food and support while he got on his feet and looked for a job. I'm really frustrated, said the guy. I tried telephoning the the church office, but no one could see me. No one could help me. I finally ended up having to let him stay with me for a week. Don't you think that the church should take care of such people? You're there before me. John Wimber thought for a moment or two and said it looks like the church did. And My point is that the church is us. The church is us. Tamworth Elim is made up of you and 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 you not sure about you. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> and you, and me, and you. It's made up of all of us. You know, sometimes you get this idea, you know, it's an organization up there somewhere, apart, you know. No, it's us. So when we hear these words of the Lord to this church at Sardis, we need to ask ourselves this morning personally Am I living on past glories? Do I have a living faith, or is my faith a shadow of what it once was? Is it a decaying faith? Is it a dying faith? Maybe this morning you're a person who has a reputation. Reputation for being a person of prayer. A reputation as a passionate evangelist, or a children's worker, or a youth worker, or having a prophetic ministry. You see, reputations are all about how others see you. The more important question is, what am I really like? Am I walking with Jesus as I once did? That is the most important question. And I thank God that we have seen God move in so many amazing ways in the last quarter of a century or so in this church. But friends, we cannot, cannot, cannot rest on the former glories of past days. Today is a new day. It's a new day. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Would you stand with me please?